I always say Mondays are good days to quit, so it was always a go hard on the weekend, Sunday recover, go light, wake up Monday, let's keep a clean slate. Mental health and addiction are largely misunderstood. We often struggle in silence, but there is hope for a better life. I'm Trevor Steinhauser, and this is Stigmatized. Today I am with Preston Moore, a man living in long-term recovery and host of a podcast called The High Cost of Anonymity. a boy. You got it. Thanks for coming down, man. Drove yeah. down from Columbus for uh, having kind of a press tour today. Yeah, not nice little jaunt. It's uh, good to be on the road. Yeah. And uh, I got uh, a, a couple of friends down here, so it's good to, yeah. Good to connect, man. I'm glad glad you uh, asked me, and thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's kind of turn the turn the clock back, and we'll talk about how where you grew up, how you grew up, and uh, we'll just cruise into it. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I am uh, from Texas. I grew up in a place called Bryan College Station. Nobody knows what Bryan is, so we just say College Station is where Texas A&M is. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, I would call it a big small town. Back when I was around, it was maybe 150,000 people. Now it's up closer to 250, but it's a... College Station has that many people? Yes. It's, really? Yeah, yeah. It's legit, man. My, it's like my a, cousin, uh, my cousin went there. Uh, to A&M. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Yeah, man. We I I grew up there. My dad owned a, a newspaper. He so he was like the local um, the local small newspaper. He wrote a column every week. My mom was a hairstylist. So if you, uh, I used to have cool hair. You and I have the same haircuts, That's which right. is yeah. not no Gonzo, haircut. Yeah, right. we don't we don't have choice anymore. But I used to have cool hair. Uh, and one thing that I loved about growing up is if you wanted to know what was going on in town. Either my mom at the hair salon knew, oh, yeah. or my father, who worked for the newspaper, knew. So and you guys so, had the scoop. Yeah, we got we had the scoop, and it was, it was kind of a joke around town that you watched. My father's name was Bubba. It couldn't get any more stereotypical go. than that. Big old <laughs> big old dude named Bubba. But they basically said, "Watch out what you what you tell them because it'll end up in the newspaper." And it was it it was probably the equivalent of like, you might call it a gossip column. Because it was pretty informal, it was fun. You know, my dad was a was a, a fun guy to say the least. And so, uh, anyways, it was just it was neat to be to to watch him to grow up around that, and always to have something to to do um, every weekend. And I also enjoyed. You know, we couldn't go, but a few feet around town before we knew someone. So. I enjoyed that, but the other thing that I learned from that, it wasn't physically, it wasn't told to me, but what I picked up was, you know, you kind of have to be on when you're out of the house, you know, shirt tucked in or looking presentable, you know, as, as a, as a troublemaker, you know, I, I used to resent my buddies because when we would be out, I'd be ducking in my car because people literally that I knew would see me and they'd call and tell my parents. So they didn't, you know, they wouldn't get found out. I would always have to worry about it. But like this, this thing that happens when we talk a lot about social media and how you just see the highlights, like everybody's got the stuff together. Well, long before social media happened, that, that was kind of like my life. Like we were one way in the house, what, what happens here stays here and you're one way out in public and you kind of have your stuff together. And, uh, um, 
yeah, it was it was just a good good uh, good upbringing. They were always uh, our crew, so we have a kind of a small family, but a large extended family, and our crew would be considered by today's standards heavy drinkers at the minimum. Um, you know, so alcohol was always involved in one way or another. Um, I picked up really quick, even before I started drinking and doing drugs, was everything's always funner with outside substances. You know, everything's always funner when you got a bunch of people around, invite everybody over. And so I, uh, yeah, I loved it as a kid. And then as I started experimenting with alcohol and drugs, I started just kind of imitating what what I saw. And I think one thing that was big, particularly around the family and our extended family was the vast majority of the crew that that my parents hung out with and that I hung out with they were they were functioning members of society yes they may they they may have been and are heavy drinkers maybe even some of them are alcoholics but they all show up to work they all you know as as much as they can be good parents good good um good workers good husbands and wives you know whatever so like this this kind of attitude of you show up to work, you pay your bills, you know, you do your thing, you can do whatever you want. So this work, work hard, hard, party hard. hard. That's yeah. right. That's right. And so I think that that's important to point out because I think the vast majority of people that struggle with alcoholism, drug addiction, and mental health, they are of the functioning type. You sure. Know? The the people getting arrested, the the needle heroin users who can't keep a job, who live under a bridge, the brown bag alcoholics. When we think alcoholism and drug addiction, instantly you go there. But those are kind of like that. That's like the tip of the iceberg. That's like the small minority compared to the vast amount of undiagnosed drug addicts and alcoholics that are out there. You know. Yeah, so I mean, it's if it's a, one out of eleven that that end up brown bagging it. Yeah. I mean, our town, the town that I live, this small town over across the river in northern Kentucky. I mean, people love to party. Yeah. I mean. Le- yeah. Legit. Yeah. Booze hounds. Well, and I think there's there's this thing, particularly new in recovery, I would say I, I would I fell victim to that, but I often thought that anybody that drank and used the way I did was automatically an alcoholic or drug addict. And that's just not the case. I mean, there's a large um there's a, equally a large portion of our population that they really are of the heavy drinking type or the heavy using type, but they're not if presented with enough evidence, whether it's medically, professionally, or in the family, uh, enough consequences, they'll cut back or stop altogether. Exactly. No doubt about it. Exactly. But but there are a large portion of those people that are like me and you that are stone cold, you know, drug addicts, alcoholics that maybe don't look the part or maybe do look the part or, or have no, I think that's one of the really more insidious things about alcoholism and drug addiction is we solution seeks its own level birds of a feather we all hang out together right and so it's easy to say the way i drink is normal the way i parent is normal the way i husband is normal the way i do things are normal because you're you know you're making that judgment just based off of the people you hang out with a good example was when i'd been sober maybe about two years and I remember going to a function with my father. It was like a black tie affair at a big hotel. He was the MC. 
maybe he wasn't the NC, but anyway, I remember going with him and when I realized the crew that we normally hung out with were kind of huddled off in the corner, it was only about 20% of the room and they were huddled around the bar and it was louder and it was funner and it was like all the thing. And I looked the other way and about 70, 80% of the room, they either weren't drinking, drinking very little. They took some sips of drink and put their drink on the table and didn't touch it for a while. Like it was the weirdest thing ever. But realizing that when you're in the middle of that, wild crew you think everybody's partying the way you're partying but then you look up and 70 percent of the room aren't right and i was like wow only, it's crazy it's crazy only my crew does it like that oh yeah you know so anyway it's, it's, it's funny it's, you say black tie because i remember i was i was also about two or three years sober and i went to this black tie event with my sister it was uh the the uh hall of fame business awards in cincinnati yeah. over at xavier tons of people hundreds of people you know, and I'm everybody, you know, six to seven's cocktails. Yeah. And I'm just looking around. And I'm still new in recovery and I'm um, just taking it all in. And these people are having cocktails. Yeah. They're having one or two before dinner and I'm looking at them and I'm like, I just don't, A, I don't understand, but B, that's the, you know, what, whatever, 88% of the population that yeah. can, that can do that, get up and go to work. I mean, there, there was wine at the table and some, you know, my sister may have had a glass of wine. Some people had a glass of wine and I'm thinking to myself, I'm laughing to myself. Yeah. A couple of our board members were there and I'm laughing. I'm thinking, okay, if I was drinking, things would have been so much different. We would have arrived in an Uber. Yeah. I would have had five drinks before the window went up before dinner would have, you know, had my arms around people telling jokes, you know, I would have been that yeah. one of the 20% there trying to jazz, jazz yeah. the thing up. And, you know, we got home. I remember I dropped my sister off at like 10 and I went home. Yeah. You know, there would have been another Uber involved, sure. whether she wanted to come out with me or not. I, I would have, I would have arrived home at 3 AM. It's just these people that can do it get up for work. I mean, there's the vast majority can period yeah. and finish. There's just a subsection of us that it's just, it's not a. Yeah. I was also thinking as you were telling the story about how much planning and hiding goes because oftentimes, you flask. know, particularly flash would have been a flash, you know, you order a beer and a shot and you take the shot real quick and see if anybody's look, you know, like that, just the, but part of that you, is the part of that is, yeah, it yeah, is, fun. The, is the fun dipping is the off fun. in the bathroom and taking care of you know, a little something here, a little something there, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just crazy. And I, I, I think in terms of, you know, when I, um, so I started getting in trouble with my parents. That means they, you know, I would stay out past curfew. I would, you know, they they find weed or something, you know. And in this the room. is how old? I um I probably started drinking around twelve, thirteen in there somewhere, middle school, smoking weed around fifteen, fourteen, fifteen. My my real you know drug of preference is weed alcohol was always was the first drug it was the last drug it was always a part of but weed was like my jam because i didn't like that um i mean in a lot of ways for someone that's underage who i didn't have any like 
I had some older friends, but not like 21 older. Uh, it was way, way easier to get drugs. And I could smoke uh, and not be hungover. I could do it during the week. You know, I could kind of, you know, smoke. Show up for dinner and be up, all right. Yeah, like, yeah. And, you know, it was, it was much easier. But anyway, so I started smoking weed around uh, 15. But a lot of times I, start, I started getting in trouble with the parents. Then you start to get the little minor stuff, minor in possession, the little ticket here, ticket there, the... Um, you know, just little stuff. You, you know, the crew that we hung out with, there was plenty of guys that were on probation or had got caught stealing. I'd been caught stealing, you know, from stores or whatever. But then you had your big stuff. Your big stuff was like DWI, drug possession. And so I got my first DWI at 17. I was a senior in high school. Um, I was in jail. My father got me out. I went home, cleaned up went to school and this was kind of the looking back this was a first real situation that i thought was abnormal was i got we had this attitude that if you go to work and you pay your own bills you can do whatever you want work hard party hard right so i went even though i was in jail i wasn't calling out the school see and and that was part of them you're going to school you know, you're going to go out and be an idiot. Your your ass is going to be up to work and go to school. And uh, I told a buddy of mine, and he's like, oh, dude, that's crazy. I can't believe it. Slapped me up, put a subs- put like a little baggie in my hand. I didn't even look what it was, but I went in the bathroom and used, right? And afterwards, I'm like, this is weird. I was just in jail. I don't know that it's that normal that I was in jail, someone gives me something, I go, I don't even think twice, I go in the bathroom and I use it, most people would be petrified that they got arrested. For me, it was kind of like a a rite of passage in a lot of ways. And so um, I was able to, because my dad knew a lot of people, I was able to kind of get out of trouble without, you know, with pretty minimal, uh, minimal issues. And then as I, that was my senior year in high school. So as I got older, I got a job right as I got out of school. I started working for a real estate management company. I got my real estate license a few months later. But this idea of if I could, ju- I'm an adult now, right? I started acting like a, an adult at 17, 18, 19 years old. But if I could just get out from under my parents' thumb, because they're trying to control me and not let me live my life or whatever this thing of progression kicked in, you know, because before this, I knew nothing about drug addiction or alcoholism. If you didn't drink, the only people I knew that didn't drink were square, you know, born agains, religious people, and I didn't want to be like any of them. And so, but two years later, I got a drug possession, right? So this was 17, 17, a year later, I got a drug, uh, two years later, I got a drug possession. A year later, I got another DWI. And four months after that, I got another drug possession. So this idea, like my trouble got closer and closer and closer together. And I was also out of four arrests, I was able to kind of skirt and finagle my way out of trouble whether it was paying someone, my parents knew someone, you know, whatever the case may be, I was able to get out of trouble. And the last time I got arrested, I was arrested by the same cop who gave me a DWI the the four months before. He was about to let me go because, uh, you know, my license was suspended. My girlfriend was driving. They pulled us over because of a headlight being out. He pulls me out of the car. And he goes, I remember you. 
you know, you're supposed to send this in. Your license suspended. I'm glad you're not driving. I'm going to let you go. And he looks down and there's a bud of weed stuck in my sweater. And he's like, oh, what's that? I'm like, oh, what? What are you talking about? So he searches me, finds the weed. So this is the first time. Are they they pretty conservative down there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And but for the first time, I was caught red handed in that. There was no if, ands, or buts. So, like, one of the ways I got out of the DWIs is I didn't give them a breathalyzer. So, no breathalyzer, no blood test. You know, in court, you can kind of argue, well, it wasn't, you know, whatever. But with this, it was like red, red handed. There was for no, that little thing he found on your sweater. No, I, I had a half, half ounce in my boot. <laughs> but, um, that was enough to make him search you. But you know what's crazy? So, two things about that time was. Again, I didn't know about the disease of addiction, progression, obsession, compulsion, the allergy. I didn't know about any of that. Real quick. So sure. so nobody in your close circle, whether family, friends, uncles, uncles of friends, you, had, you knew nobody that was. There was one guy who was sober uh, and he drank. Uh, he would go to all the parties and the campouts and stuff, but he would only drink Dr. Pepper and but the stories we heard was he was a low bottom, down and out, couldn't hold a job, fought wanted to fight the world, was a Vietnam vet and struggled and and twenty years before he got sober. And but that's the but, only, but that's it. That's, that's it. That's your only reference. And so but the 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 a large I would say that the large portion of our crew crew, right? And I say our crew like my parents' crew and whatever. I think they're functioning alcoholics. I, I mean, th- to give you an example, I joke with my mom about I looked up what what constitutes a heavy drinker according to the medical association, right? And I can't remember the exact website, so don't quote me, but it says if you have more than four drinks in one sitting, fifteen in a week. Fifteen. Like- there you go. So, so the what I read was you have more than four in a sitting, more than twice a week, right? So. And I told my mom that she's like, what? That's crazy. I don't even start counting until I've had two. And that's, and I don't think my mom is an alcoholic. She, you know, she's a, I think she's, you know, according to that, a heavy, you know, drinker, but, but, um, but yeah, that, like that's our crew. Like if I have two glasses of wine, that's as if I didn't drink. It's only when I get to three, four to, you know, two bottles is when I go, yeah, I drank last night, you know, Right. Yeah. but, but that was kind of the, the thing. I mean, we were. You know, yeah, it's just I knew nobody that was, quote, unquote, an alcoholic or someone that was sober. And so that last time I got arrested, I remember sitting in the back of that car going. I put my I'm in the I'm leaning my head against the back of the 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 plastic headrest and go, finally, someone's going to help me control my using. I didn't think I was an alcoholic or drug addict, but in my mind, I thought I knew there was something odd that I got arrested twice in four months. Um, and I thought that if I got on probation, that if I had someone to report to every month, I would smoke weed two weeks out of the month. I I could, you know, maintain drinking beer throughout the month and I'd be fine and I could kind of reel it back in. And I guess now that I'm talking about it, there was some sort of element of I knew I probably was smoking too much and drinking too much or whatever. And I, you know, hey, we, we all need to reel it back in. So I thought that that's what probation would be for me. And so the other thing at this point in my life was I thought I could quit anytime I wanted. I just didn't want to because I was 
I was 20 years old at the time. I mean, my entire using career was underage. So I was 20 years old. I'd been out of the house for a couple of years. Um, and yeah, I can quit whenever I want. I just don't want to. And so what happened with well, this was in December. And I remember going, all my other idiot friends, they get arrested and then they quit using. Also, again, alcohol is, ne I never consider alcohol a drug. To me, that's like a staple. Not getting hammered, but just alcohol. So when I say drugs, I was meaning like weed or anything else. So all my idiot friends that I thought I was so much smarter than, they'd get arrested and then they'd quit using until they go to court. But they would go to court like three to six months later. I'm like, why would you quit? You're not going to get a UA for it. So in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to just keep using. I know I'm not going to court until May. And my strategy was I was going to quit four weeks before court. Four weeks rolled around, and I said, all right, this is it. You know, you ever notice it's always easy to quit when you're already loaded? Yeah. You know what I mean? It don't, don't you go, yeah, you have that experience where you're like, you know what? I've had enough, man. Tomorrow, clean slate, man, I'm not going to use no more. And you go to sleep, and you wake up, and you're like, oh, man, I'm not going to use. And then about three, four o'clock hits, and you're like, you know, a little alcohol. A little, I mean, four weeks is a I long mean, time. Right. <laughs> that's exactly what I told myself. Four weeks, you only need two to to to, to be clean, right? I was kind of being a, a super a super yeah, prepared. In that moment, that thirty second conversation with yourself, that two you bought two more weeks. Well, it's it's so what what I did was is I always say Mondays are good days to quit. So it was always a go hard on the weekend, Sunday recover, go light, wake up Monday, let's keep keep a clean slate. And I go, you know, a few beers here, and I go, you know what, I towards the end of the week you know I, I might as well smoke i mean i only need two i give myself three weeks so this is like the the, the justification in my mind of i only need Insanity. three i was doing because i'm so responsible i was quitting four weeks before i'm justified in whatever so anyway the <laughs> same thing happened three weeks rolled around sunday i say hey tomorrow's a good day to quit two and i go well, all i need is two and i go but i'm serious this time trevor i'm serious two weeks i'm gonna quit for sure for sure Two weeks rolled around, and I remember at some point in that week, I go, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to just keep using, and I'll just be honest with the probation officer. He'll give me a slap on the wrist, no harm, no foul, like I always do because I knew how to talk to people. I tuck my shirt in. I starch my pants. I, I, you know, I knew, you know, like I knew how to be responsible, right? And so I thought I could just kind of slide my way through you know and so i went start in start probation on a clean slate right yeah yeah as one does but i told i remember telling my probation officer um hey i uh yeah I, I used i haven't stopped using you know i haven't stopped smoking he goes oh wow thanks for being honest but you're gonna have to come in every week to give me uas right your urine tests and i'm like every week what are you talking about like I was honest with you. Whatever happened to every month? And he goes, well, most people stop doing what it is they got in trouble for before they get here. You didn't. And I'm like, all right, touche. And he also said, you need to go get an assessment and go to treatment. And I was like, well, here's the thing. I'm, an, I'm a realtor. It's the busy time of year because it was like <laughs> school, right? So so like April to August, I was like, can I, can I wait to the end of the summer? Thinking nothing of it because I had no understanding of addiction. I didn't, again... I could quit anytime I want. I just don't want to. So uh, I basically, I started going to report every week. I was absent for a couple weeks. What did he say to your question about the summer? 
fine. Yeah, he said, okay. Oh. Yeah, yeah, he said, cool. There you go. So, uh, so I was living with a girl at the time, and she was very supportive, but she also said, uh, I'm not the one in trouble. I'm going to keep doing what we're doing, and you could just drive me around. No big deal, because you can quit whenever you want. No problem, right? So I would go to parties with her, newsflash, it's not very fun to go to college parties without drinking and using, right? So I would be 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock would roll around, and I'd be like nagging her to go home. She'd be pissed. I'm like, this sucks, you know, whatever. But after a couple of weeks, I was like, well, I'll just have one or two drinks. And I did it successfully. Think of how, I don't know if you've ever done it, but how many people out there go, you know, I'm just going to have a couple. And, and the fact that they've done it once or twice or three times, they go, see, I can control it. It's no big deal, right? So one or two, the next weekend was like, well, three or four. And then on started the cycle of compulsion. So the obsession was... When am I going to get to do it again? How am I going to be able to make it through? I didn't see alcohol as an issue at all. It was only the hard stuff and the weed that I was worried You're about. You're not getting tested for alcohol. Yeah, right. And you only need 24, right? 24 hours. So every Tuesday I'm going in. But what had happened was I drank. It started increasing. It was like just Saturday night. Then it went to Friday, Saturday. It went Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then I started layering on substances. Because what I re- alcohol is all good, but what I really like is the and us and the the in addition tos, right? The drinking and whatever else I can throw on, and so I started using harder drugs. I was drinking those drinks where you try to piss clean, you know. So I was still very paranoid. So I'm Golden I'm, Seal or whatever the hell. Gold, it was. Golden Seal that that shows a little bit of your age. I don't know if it's still around. I was doing the cheap route, Serto, which was like gelatin. You drink gelatin. They're like a dollar at the grocery store or whatever yeah. they coat Check your out. insides you just pee straight water <laughs> but um but what was what was crazy about that is not only did i start layering on substances that were harder and harder substances that weren't necessarily even my drug of choice but eventually i started smoking weed again and then my at the end of the summer my probation officer calls me in and says hey come into the supervisor's office i literally and I'm not joking. I thought that they were going to sit me down and tell me how great of a probation client I am. <laughs> I mean, I paid, I showed up on time. I kept all my appointments. I paid my, you know, my fines and stuff. I was actually ahead of the game. I literally thought they were going to say, wow, Preston, you're good. So was that gelatin stuff working? Yeah. I mean, like, well, I mean, okay. Sorry. I'm, so I'm, he said, so he goes, hey, Thanks for coming in. Thanks for paying. Thanks for showing up. And he goes, but there's this weird thing that's happening with all your urine tests. They keep coming up diluted. And I'm like, well, what's that? And he goes, well, it it comes up like uh, like we don't even get a reading as if you're not even human. You know, when someone when you test human <laughs> urine, there's markers in there that show that you're human, but it comes up as like straight water. Are you putting water? I'm like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, that's exactly what was happening. It was working. It wasn't coming up dirty, but it was coming warm. up urine. Yeah, that's right. It's just it's warm, you know. So uh, he goes, I, he goes, one more diluted, and I'm revoking your probation. You're going to go to jail, and I'm going to treat it as if you're dirty. And then he started going in the bathroom with me. So at that point, I said, hey, the gig is up, and uh, 
And I went to do, and he goes, oh, and by the way, it's the end of the summer. You need to go get your assessment. I remember t- doing that checklist. I don't know if you ever did this, but they give you this checklist of 25 questions oh, yeah. and say like, have you ever drank more than this? Have you ever used more than this? And so I'm like, check, 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 check. Like 18 checks, right? Out of 25. And of course, there's a couple questions like, of course I haven't do- done that. You'd be, I'd be an alcoholic if I did that. But then she says, well, if you check yes to more than three, you might have a, drug and alcohol problem and I had checked yes to like 18 and I'm like I remember being dumbfounded I'm like what are you talking about everybody I know does this and I'm a lightweight compared to all the people I know and so they recommended me to uh, IOP it's like rehab after work so you go to work that that was one thing you know I, ha- I still had these standards where uh, on top of show up to work and pay your bills, it's don't drink or use at work because people that are drug addicts and alcoholics use at work. So for me, I was able to abstain while I was at work, not because I was all great, but I actually tried to use a few times at work and I couldn't function. And so, so I made up the story that, oh, well, good thing because only drug addicts and alcoholics use at work. So anyway, I was able, so I would go to treatment uh, six to nine and I was still using on the weekends. I was still drinking. And uh, I remember telling my counselor um, that I don't understand why I have to quit drinking because I'm not an alcoholic. Now, I'd been 21 for a month at this point. I'd just turned 21. you know, I, I, um, again, I couldn't fathom a life without alcohol and I didn't see the issue. I would go, well, I get the drugs. They're illegal. Maybe I'm a drug addict, whatever, but I'm not an alcoholic. And so this was probably a second kind of big point, um, in my early, you know, getting, getting sober was she said, look, you're on probation, right? I said, yes. Well, you signed a contract. Am I right? I did. Do you know in that contract it says you can't drink? I say, well, I didn't know that, but it makes sense. She goes, well, probation says you can't drink. You're in treatment, right? Yes. We say you can't drink. Yeah, okay. This is only six weeks long. Don't you think someone that's not an alcoholic can abstain for six weeks? And I'm like, well, that's a good point. And she also says, why are you so insistent on hanging on to this substance that if you get kicked out or you get found out at at probation, you're going to go to jail. And that was kind of the first like real, you know, she kind of cut past my bullshit. Yeah. Cause I, cause I go, number one, I knew she was right. But number two, I go, why am I so insistent on hanging on to this substance? Obsession. Even though I wasn't getting smashed every night, but I was like, Again, go back to a few beers, a few beers is relative, but I kept going like, why am I so insistent on having a few drinks if I got everything on the line? And so that weekend was, uh, I went hard that weekend, woke up on a Sunday because Sundays are good days to quit. And I said, that's it. I'm going to, I'm going to quit drinking and I'm going to do whatever they say. And so I also had a hard time identifying early on because I was so young. I'd been 21 for a month. Absolutely. Everybody in there was so old. I remember I asked my first sponsor, I was like, how old were you when I asked you to sponsor me? And he did some math. He's like, about 36. I was like, holy smokes. I was like, I thought you were so old. You know, I'm 21, 36 is old, you know, but, but, and he was the youngest in our crew, but in our rehab, there was everybody had like lost jobs, lost families, you know, lost all kind of stuff, missing teeth, tattoos, different backgrounds. And in my mind, I was not like them. 
And if I was as bad as they were, I would, you know, I'd be here too, but I'm not like you. But what happened was when I finally started abstaining, for real, for real, if I closed my eyes and I didn't look at who was talking, because when I'm looking at someone, I'm I'm judging them. Mm-hmm. I'm coming up with all the reasons why I'm not like them. I don't look like them. They're a different race or, or gender or whatever, different backgrounds. I'm not. But when I closed my eyes and listened to what you said, how you thought and how you felt, I was like, how do they, I think like that? And how do they know? That, like, I've never told anybody that. How do they know I think like that? Or I've felt that way or I've done that. And then this realization that they didn't end up there. They didn't start where they're at. In other words, they didn't start losing everything. They started where I was at. I was still able to kind of keep the balls in the air. I was still kept the job and paid the bills and whatever and hadn't got strung out on the harder stuff quite yet. Um and they made me go to uh, meetings. So I went to meetings Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I got a sponsor. And slowly, and this is one thing that I, a lot of people in the rooms will say, you have to want to get sober for it to work. You have to want to get clean for it to work. And for some people, that might be true. But it wasn't for me because I didn't want to get sober and I didn't want to get clean. And it worked for me. I was forced Oh, you can't be forced to be here. You got to come. That's not true for me because I was forced by probation to be there. And I'm so grateful because my butt had to be in the seat, right? I had to commit to that every single day treatment and and get my paper signed and whatever Um, that I sat there long enough to go, huh, what they're talking about is interesting Two. They might have a point. Three, I actually might be an alcoholic. Four, I am an alcoholic, but I don't see any way possible that I can stay sober because I can't fathom a life without at least alcohol or weed in my life. Two, maybe I can stay sober to the end of the treatment or maybe I can stay sober to the end of the year, which was like maybe three or four months, something like that. But like this subtle... um this like hope started, I started getting a little bit of hope, you know, um, and, and understanding of what these other folks were going through. And that, like you said, when you close your eyes and listen, you really aren't that different. Yeah. And it was like understanding, like my sponsor would talk a lot about using against my will. And I, and I would have told you, I, I you know, every, I, anytime I use, I use cause I wanted to. I was, I thought that I used when I wanted, I used as much as I wanted and I stopped when I wanted. That couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. I had, I was powerless against it. And I didn't know that when I started that first sip, somewhere between the first sip and the bottom of the second drink or, or substance that I was, I didn't know if I was going to stop there. Or if I was going to keep going and it's going to be three o'clock in the morning, I was going to show up the next day still drunk. I didn't know that, right? Um, I sure as hell didn't plan to be arrested all those times. I sure as hell, anytime I had any negative consequences, whether it's in my personal life, my family life, or my work life, because I had them, or criminally, I didn't plan that. And so like getting this understanding that I was using against my will that the other part I had a tr- I had problems with, which is this is why it's so important to have sponsorship and mentorship, right? 
I'm quite biased toward 12 step, but this is why, is that when I read stuff, I think I know what it means. When I hear you say something, I think I know what you mean. But until I sit down with someone and we start looking up definitions and we start doing some journaling and we start kicking back and forth and start digging through the layers, then I realize, you know, that word, I didn't actually know what unmanageability meant for real, for real. I thought that because I showed up to work and I kept a calendar and I showed up to appointments and I made good money, I thought that and I paid my bills that my life was manageable. But the, it was funny, my, my, I used to have a Palm Pilot. You remember those oh, before cell yeah. phones? And I'd always pull it out and I'd put the you know my appointment in. He goes, why, why do you always put your appointments in there? And I go, well, sometimes I miss appointments or I show up late and if it's not there and I don't have the alarm, I'll, I'll miss it. And he goes, that sounds kind of unmanageable to me. If you're so manageable, why do you need that? And I was like, huh, maybe, maybe he's got a point. And so- because when I was working step one, I could get with the powerlessness, right? Like I, I, I knew enough to say, to understand I was using against my will. I was powerless that once I started, I wasn't sure when I was going to stop. Even though I was able to stop a lot, I couldn't always guarantee it. But the unmanageability, I really had a hard time with because of my image of what functioning manageability looked like, you know? And so... um so anyway, that was kind of the start of my journey, and I, I dove in head first. I was lucky that um, I really I like people. I enjoyed the meetings. I went from having to go to wanting to go. Um, I knew at some point I knew I didn't want to drink and use. Um, I wasn't sure I could stay sober a year, but I knew – I wanted to, if I wanted to stay clean to the end of the year or for nine months or whatever, that I kept kind of moving the bar, which was good. Uh, yeah. I knew I couldn't hang out with my friends. I knew I couldn't hang out with my family. I lived by myself. I moved out of my girlfriend's house and moved by myself that I didn't trust myself. So I was like, well, what the hell am I going to do? Well, I'm not going to use it work because I'm pretty good at that, but it, I'd go to work until five. We had an AA clubhouse, so I'd go to the clubhouse for a 6 o'clock. I'd sit around and wait, and I'd either make the 8 o'clock there or I'd go to an 8 o'clock NA meeting. And I did that, you know, on the the weekdays, on the weekends, I'd make multiple meetings. So I just – I didn't want to be alone, I would, so I'd just go sit up there. And so that kind of started this process. I got a sponsor. We worked the steps. I got into service, showed up early to meetings, you know, this, this idea of like if the meeting starts at 7 – you know, a lot of times. Pre-meeting time, in the afternoon. Yeah, like, that. well, you know, like I even do it now on Zoom or whatever. Is so you show up right at 7, leave it right at 8. But, like, I'd show up 30 minutes or an hour early. I'd hang out 30 minutes or an hour after. We'd go eat to the dining. And I didn't understand what was happening, but that was, like, retraining myself on what it's like to be sober, what it's like to. The other cool thing I think that people miss, and I wish they, you know, maybe you can't, they don't figure it out until you actually get sober is when I thought of people that didn't drink and use, I thought them as boring and I thought them as square and I didn't want to be hanging around boring people or square people. But the funny thing is, is that when you're hanging around drug addicts and alcoholics in recovery, they're the same wild people Absolutely. that used to hang out. They just don't use anymore. That's right. And so from the outside, They're still sick and twisted right. and fun. And yeah, yeah. And, and and so from the outside, it looks like going to the diner until one in the morning drinking coffee sounds boring. But when you're in there, you're it's hearing, fun. yeah, you're hearing like 
drug stories and well, you know jail stories and you find all this stuff out about people and you realize I'm still hanging out with the wild people that I really enjoy we just don't use no more and right. so um so yeah man so that was 21 what that was 21 when I was 20, age 21 I was 21 I turned uh I turned 21 August the 7th and my clean date is September 10th so I actually just turned 40 and then about Seven days, eight days, I'll have 19 years. It's unbelievable, it's wild, man. Dude. Congratulations. Wild. Uh, see, I, I just, I can't, I think about that. I think about young folks, because I got sober at 37. Would I have been able to do it? I mean, I, I don't know. It, it, it's just, it's crazy to me because it's a, it's that, that is such a tough age with binging and with the, the people that are, that age that you can't disseminate yeah. at that age most of the time yeah. without the education who has a problem and who who could potentially have a problem who i mean do you credit that to the fact that you had to have your ass in a seat yeah. with I, the with the probation and so and i think i think it? everybody has that thought i mean people that are getting so my father-in-law's uh 79 years old he's got 7 years sober so he probably goes, could I have gotten sober at 37? I'm not sure I could. You know, it's sure. the same thing. Right. I, right. I had a buddy. Makes sense. Who, uh, one of the things that helped me the most was I used to tell my sponsor, man, I wish there was more young people in here. It's all you old folks and blah, blah, blah. Um, and uh, he's like, well, if you don't hang around, if you don't stay here, when the next young person comes in, they're going to be able to use the same excuse you're trying to use right now. But if you're here and they come and you got a 21, 22-year-old, they have a better shot of hanging around. And number one, he made a good point. He's probably, uh, you know, poking my ego a bit because I'm like, yeah, I'll be able to help him out, you know. But I thought that same thing. I had a, a buddy of mine that I got sober with. He got sober at 18. And then you hear other people, they got sober at 15, 16 years old. But here's what I think is important, uh, Trevor, is... Although I don't think everybody has to reach a bottom, 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 you know what I mean? It's like, oh, sometimes you got to lose everything or you got to get to your bottom or whatever. And I do think that's important. But I think some people are lucky to get arrested four times in three years. They're lucky to lose their job or house. They're lucky to get into a, a bad car wreck because then all the excuses of functioning are removed. You know, it's like... Dak Shepard on, on the armchair expert uh, talked uh, uh, quite a bit about this is I think one reason why so many there's so many functioning addict and alcoholics out there is that let's just say you go on a bender and let's say you get in a fight with your wife and let's say your kids are just said, dad, this is the last time and I can't stand you and this and that and everything's in shambles and you go to work and you crush and they say, Wow. How did you do that? You made that big sale. Wow, you really, you're a great leader. So everything else is in shambles. And then you go to your profession and you crush. You're like, well, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Right. Right. Or Dax was talking in terms of like uh, profession, uh, like uh, comedians and actors and whatever, is that everything can be in shambles, but you get up and you do a good set and everybody's clapping and wow, you're so amazing. We, we love you. And they go, everybody loves me. How can I be a, a drug addict? Yeah. You know that thing I was talking about? Yeah, and I'm not going to rehab. You know what I mean? So that that's like when when because all that it was so much pressure put on 
profession and bringing home the bacon and yeah. and supporting your family. I mean, if you're if you've if if at least that part is set, yeah. you, you're good. And I think everyone that is, you know, because if you're, I don't think a like real alcoholics, drug addicts, or anybody struggling with like even you can layer on food, sex, spending. Whatever that thing is that that you're using, uh, binging on whatever, nobody really knows how much you're really doing. Like nobody really. You ever seen people that are like really overweight and you watch them eat and they don't eat any more than anybody else does. And you're like, I don't see. How are they so big? You don't see at night at 12 o'clock when they're, you know, eating three sleeves of cookies and a pint of ice cream and sodas. And you don't see that. Right. And so same thing with alcohol. So many people you're like, how did, how did that person get so drunk? Like you didn't see they were dipping to the bathroom with the flask or, or they wait till they get home. They keep it all together at the networking event at home at the, at the student events. And a buddy of mine I used to sponsor is his big thing was he would, be uh, sober all day long. He'd check all the boxes. And at night, he would drink pint glasses of vodka. Mm. So nobody knew about it. But yet he's going, I'm an alcoholic. And everybody's like, well, you? I've never even seen you drunk. What are you talking about? So it's this insidiousness of like, we really don't know how much people are using. But here's a good test. If someone is wondering if they have a drug or alcohol problem. First off, to burst your bubble... People that are not drug addicts and alcoholics never, listeners, I'm talking to you, they never wonder if they have a drug or alcohol problem. It just doesn't come up. Even if they're a heavy drinker or user, they go, you know what, I'm going to cut back and they cut back. You know what, I'm never going to use that substance again and they don't use the substance again. You know what, I'm not going to drink that much anymore and they don't drink that much anymore. Whether or not they're a drug addict or alcoholic never crosses their mind. So if you're considering, am I a drug addict or alcoholic, you you already got one strike against you. You probably qualify. But here's a good test. If you are having problems in one area of your life, your family life, your personal or social life, or your work life, if alcohol or drugs is causing a problem in any of those three areas, that means you have a drug or alcohol problem, right? But what we do is we'll say, yeah, I may not be able to keep a job, but as long as I show up to my kids' baseball and as long as I'm a good dad, that's all that matters. Double down on the good, too. That's right. You know, well, yeah, sure, I keep trying to fight my best friend or I always have to get driven home and, you know, they got to take care of me, but I'm a good dad and I show up to work. Or everything's in shambles and they show up to – it's like we all – it's a shell game. We all justify – well, I can't be an alcoholic because of X, and you usually pick the one you're best at. And if that card never falls, if that area never, that's what keeps people sick. That's why I'm talking about that. That's why the vast majority of people that I think qualify in the in the rooms and the places that we go is is because they're the they're they're going around undiagnosed, which also brings me to something that I'm quite passionate about is so about a year year and a half ago i started going to adult children of alcoholic and dysfunction meetings aca okay so aa was started right that was for the alcoholic al-anon was started for like the spouses of and the families of so that's called family group meetings right so they they address like the the 
codependency, the manipulation, whatever. So they're for the spouses of, family of. And then all these little spinoffs happen, like Alateen, so the teen in the that has a you know alcoholic mom or dad or grandparent, right. whatever. Um, Narcotics Anonymous for the drug specifics, right? Uh, cocaine, and, there's all kind of stuff. But ACA was stemmed from these Alateens. So they grew up with a, a, a alcoholic mom, dad, or someone in recovery. They got of age, they became adults, but they didn't identify in Al-Anon. Al-Anon a lot of times is the spouses of. They, they're the spouses of a drug addict or alcoholic or they're the mom and dad of. But when you're a teen and you grow up and your parents are sober, you still struggle with issues, but they're not the issues that your mom had and they're not the issues that your dad had. It's kind of a weird thing. So what they they were like, we don't fit in Al-Anon and we no longer are teens. Now what? So some alcoholics, some Al-Anons and some Alateens got together and they created ACA. And they it's probably one of the best recovery literature books that I've ever read. And what they're, what they layer on is like how much of our childhood that maybe when our parents were drinking and using, that's still affecting us today, generational trauma. So what about grandparents that affected the parents and the parents said, we're never drinking and using, there's going to be no alcohol in this house. They still have the isms. They still have the behaviors, even though alcohol is not there. And they found out this weird thing was happening was about half the people that came to ACA didn't have an alcoholic in the home, even in their grandparents' home. They weren't, there was no alcohol around anywhere, but they found that they identified with families that grew up with alcoholism. So it was a weird thing, right? It's this weird kind of, so what happened was they added and dysfunction, so uh, adult children of alcoholics and dysfunction. And there's about five different family types that that model having an alcoholic in the home. And that is, if you've got a mental health, someone that struggles with mental health in the home, mom, dad, you know, sister, brother, grandparents, whatever, strict religion or military. So like, you know, they have these high, high uh, expectations that you can never meet. The, the shame, the guilt, that abandonment, um, the ignoring your feelings that can come along with strict religion or strict military. You're raised in foster care or adopted or some kind of like outside um, family type situation. Uh, you had a sick parent in the home. So someone in the house was either sick all the time or they were a hypochondriac. They acted sick. You know, so there was a pill for everything. Yeah. These families model what it's like, shame, guilt, and abandonment, or kind of the big three, model what it's like to have a drug addict, alcoholic parent in the home. And so that's one thing that's really opened a big door for me because mm. for every alcoholic, I call us Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, right? We're the easy one to diagnose. We got the big red nose. We're acting a fool. We're using the drugs. We're doing. But what about Rudolph's crew? The crew points at Rudolph and say, if I ever get as bad as him, then I'll clean up. Or what do you mean? We don't have an issue. They got an issue. But like how much dysfunction is baked into the family and the generations of. In other words, if you are raised by, let's say you have an alcoholic great, great, great grandfather and their home is so 
terrible that the next generation says we're never going to have it. And they go hardcore into religion. So they're taking the alcoholic insidiousness and chaos, transitioning. They see religion through the lens of that kind of chaos. And then not to mention many organized religious organizations, they really trade on shame and guilt. Don't do this or you're going here. You should feel bad and ashamed that you even thought that. So it's like generationally, you might be two, three, four generations removed from alcoholism, but yet that insidiousness, that codependency, that issue with authority, that scared of angry people, like all these things that are just there that are, that are, and then you get people. That's why I also think I'm lucky that I've got the disease of addiction because at least I know right? At least I know that that's the jam versus all these people are going, I don't know why. I don't know why I feel this way. I don't know why I can't have this failure to launch. I don't know why I still feel like a child in a man's body. I don't get, I don't understand. I don't know why I can't be the father or the husband that I want to be. And they're going around with undiagnosed alcoholism or undiagnosed shame, guilt, and abandonment or undiagnosed issues that are deep in their core, in their subconscious at a, at a cellular generational level. And they're going around going, I'm not sure what's wrong. Right. They're not going to go, they're not going to go to a counselor. They're not going to do this. They're going, hanging around a bunch of people that think like them. So they're kind of floating along as like, well, everybody's like this and this is just the way it is. I guess I got to accept life. Yeah. And so anyway, yeah. So, so, I think that's why when we talk about stigma, right? We talk about getting rid of the stigma, being stigmatized, feeling stigmatized. I think the way through stigma is by normalizing counseling, therapy, coaching, and support groups. It's not destigmatizing heroin addict, being a heroin addict. Yes, that's important. It's not necessarily destigmatizing the down and out drug addict, right? I think destigmatizing the drug addict and the alcoholic will be a byproduct. It'll happen in addition to if we would make it not only normal, but almost expected or cool that you have a counselor, that you have a mentor, that you have a coach, that you have a therapist, that you, of course, we had childhood trauma and I've got some wounds that are there and I had to go work through them. Nobody questions that if I want to lose weight and change my life for a New Year's resolution that I go to a gym, I pay for a membership and I hire a personal trainer, maybe even if I'm lucky, a dietitian. Not We wouldn't even question, Trevor, good for you. That's so great. But if I go, you know, I feel really unsatisfied and I'm not being a very good father and I'm not being the best husband. I, th- I think I'm going to go hire a counselor. What? Is right. there something wrong? I mean, no, you're a great. Why, why would you go do that? There's this. There's this stigma. Save you. That's right. right. There's this stigma, and so if we, the other thing why I think it's so beneficial and important to to normalize and destigmatize um, counseling, therapy, and support groups is if more people are. In something like that, what we would call programming or surrounding themselves around personal development, they're more likely to catch alcoholism and drug addiction and mental health earlier. Yeah. The reason so many people go undiagnosed and they end up in the mental institution or in rehab or get because they're floating along undiagnosed. But if everybody kind of has a habit of like looking at, 
you know, under the layers and not just what's on the surface and talking about feelings and childhood trauma and this kind of stuff and how to be married and how to be a better father. We're way more likely to catch the stuff at an earlier stage so you don't have to end up down and out before you finally get help. And so that's kind of the, that's kind of the, the, the banner that I've been waving quite a bit lately. And I just think, I just think it's so important. I I think it's so important to have someone that you check in with, that you, that help you kind of peel back the layers. Cause look, if you knew what you were doing, you would have figured it out a long time ago. Right. If I knew how to parent and husband the way that I have in my mind, I wouldn't be backing myself into a corner where I act, you know, like a you know what, and then I feel shame and guilt because I just did something to my kid or I hurt my wife's feelings and I'm going, how, why do I keep doing this? Right. If I knew it, I would fix it already. Right. I don't, I need help. And that's why I'm constantly kind of going down these paths to try and improve and work out some of the stuff that's down deep within the subconscious, work out some of the, some of the stories that I made up as a kid. You know, I experienced something, I made up a story about me that I'm no good or I'm not worth it or blah, 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 blah. And it's under the surface, so I can't put my finger on it, but I keep making these. It's my responsibility to dig, dig through that. And if if people would hear this message, be like, oh, I, maybe I should hire a counselor. That's probably what 80% of people just need. Absolutely. Just a counselor. So, counselors need counselors. Counselors yeah. need counselors, marriage counselors, parent parent counselors, parent support groups. And um, anyway, that's I, I think that's uh, I think that's we're moving in the right direction. And I think that's where the focus lies. That's where the focus should be if we really want to destigmatize mental health, addiction, personal development and just uh, just the human condition. Yeah. So let's talk about the podcast your uh, idea behind it and yeah. uh when you started it and just a, a little bit about so the journey. the podcast um uh, is called the high cost of anonymity and um the when i started the podcast i really just i didn't tell anybody i was going to start a podcast i didn't proclaim that oh i'm going to do a podcast launch i didn't do a logo i didn't write goals down uh truth be told i thought um, I wasn't sure if I could fill the airtime. I wasn't sure if I would start it and quit like I do a lot of things. And, and if I told you, then I quit, then I'd feel shame and guilt about it. But the, the meaning behind the podcast has become more and more broad. I, I, w- I would love to tell you it was planned, but it wasn't. But I was coming from a 12-step side. So in 12-step, I'm not saying this is what the literature says, but what I heard was anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film, which means you can't tell anybody you're a member of Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. You can't even tell people that you got help from 12-step. My interpretation, not that's not what it says, but I remember going, I've found this thing that has absolutely changed my life, and I'm not supposed to tell anybody? Like, I'm supposed to, this is based on attraction rather than promotion, so I have to wait till you ask me, how'd you do it before I, at before I say something or see them in a meeting and go, oh, yeah, we're in the same club, right? Exactly. But I, so that was my interpretation. But luckily, I got sober early enough and I was in job positions where it wasn't a big deal that I was really open with people. I would tell people I'm sober, I would tell people I'm in recovery. What I tell people now is, as early and as often as I can, and I do it in every arena, when I meet someone, I 
intentionally make try to make a point to say, hey, by the way, if you know someone struggling with mental health or addiction, I want you to know that I've got a lot of experience. My family has a lot of experience. So feel free to hand my number out if, if, if you know someone that needs help. Anyway, hey, what do you think about the kids? Hey, let's go to dinner. Hey, let's get... So there's two things and why I think that's important. Number one, it's indirect. I don't say, hey, Trevor, if do you struggle with mental health or addiction? Because if you do, you could ask me for help. It's too direct. Even if you are struggling, you're not going to say anything. You're going to shut down. Yeah. So I always say, Trevor, hey, by the way, if you know someone, you know someone, family, you know, whatever. And the other thing is it's got to be quick and I have to divert after. Right. So, hey, if you know someone, we have experience, which is basically saying I have experience. I'm not just... I'm just not an advocate. I actually have experience. You can give my number out, and then I change the subject. Okay. Most people will go, oh, cool, you know, whatever, you know. And I used to, I'd fumble through that. Now it's so so smooth. People just go, oh, that's cool, whatever. And I work in the field, so it kind of makes sense. But what I'm doing is I'm fishing, right? I'm, I want them to know that if they've got something, they know someone, or six months down the road, someone says, hey, my son's struggling. What should I do? I want them to call me. Right. And so that's part of the, the destigmatizing. But I, the high cost of anonymity is we all have a story and everybody, and I mean, everybody has some sort of struggle. They're probably not living up to the expectations they have for themselves. They're not as good of a father, husband, worker, whatever. They may or may not have some dark trauma in their past. Maybe, you know, whatever the case may be. But most people are so embarrassed and ashamed to tell anybody that they've had that past, that they keep it to themselves. And my attitude is you have a lot of people that you can help by telling them, I have experience with childhood trauma. I have experience with, you know, not living up to the expectations in my marriage. I have experience with, uh, you know, parenting, you know, like whatever the case may be. And so by learning to tell your story, you give other people permission to share your story. And that also kind of ties in with, I have the ability to make it look like I got my stuff together, right? If you hear me talk, I'm confident in a lot of ways. I'm also very insecure, uh, struggle with self-worth or whatever. But you look at me on social media, you hear me on the mic, you hear, you look at me, I'm at my profession and you go, wow, he must have it together. So unless I tell them, Trevor, I struggle with masculinity. Trevor, I have an unhealthy relationship with anger. Trevor, I can't feel my feelings. Trevor, I do things to my child in a fit of anger that I'm embarrassed to shame. If I don't tell you that, you think I'm perfect. Right. Right? And so I feel like even though when I started the podcast, The High Cost of Anonymity, it was about 12-step or recovery, then I go, you know what? People that struggle with mental health have Absolutely. a story. You know what? People that have lost jobs or like it's so broad i didn't really realize it and the premise is just everybody's got a story everybody's got a struggle learn how to share the story so you can be a resource for someone even if it's just you're resourcing your neighborhood you're resourcing your parenting cl- your pto classes your resource at work so your job not all jobs so you know don't go blaring it out to everybody i i, I think there's a, it's important to learn what someone is and work with them directly on what's your way to self-disclose or what's your way to share your story but to be able to say I like I, I've even had people in my industry, mental health and addiction hospital, say you shouldn't you shouldn't tell people you're in recovery, right? Because clinically they're taught that not to self-disclose. 
But I go, what a number one, I think people that are in recovery and, and, and are in recovery from mental health and or addiction are an absolute asset to the workplace. But how is someone going to know that you can help them or can at least direct them in the right direction if they don't know you've ever struggled? And so, you know, it's just learning to be a resource. And again, going back to this idea of how else are we going to destigmatize drug and alcohol addiction and mental health if we don't learn to tell people we struggle with the human condition, we struggle, we don't live up, you know, like to to do it in a way that's responsible, productive, that opens the door for questions and conversation, not shuts the door and makes everybody else think that everybody's got their stuff together and I don't. I'm the only one that struggles. I'm the only one that falls short. I'm the only one, you you know what I mean? And we're just doing that subconsciously just by looking at everybody. I'd much rather have his problems, not mine. You don't know anything about anybody else, right? Right. So so anyway, High Cost Anonymity, you can find it on anywhere you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Anchor, Google Google Play, whatever it is. I uh, do interviews like this. I do solo casts. It's pretty intimate. Uh, yeah, it's no, fun. It's, Love it. it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> How many episodes? So uh, I'm actually coming up on, so September 10th is my 19 years, and I'm going to drop my 100th episode. And How so, cool is that? Yeah. I, I, someone had said, oh, you're coming up to 100. Are you going to do something special? I'm like, yeah, no. Well, maybe I should do something. So what I did was is I booked my very first sponsor, who I still talk to today, on. And I, he's going to be my interview for my 100th, and I'll drop it on September 10th, which will be the be my 19 years. So, I mean, look, it's the, the reality is it probably doesn't really matter, but I think it's cool. Oh, so. absolutely. I think it's super cool, too. No, hey, man, I appreciate you uh, – taking the time to uh, come and join me and congrats on 19 years. I mean, inspiration for me, yeah. I'll be five in October and uh, you know, it's, it's cool to meet and talk and become friends with, with people that got time under their belt and a student of the game for sure. Uh, yeah, man. Yeah. Thanks for great. having me on. It was Absolutely. a pleasure. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. I want to thank everyone that makes this show possible. Production by Gwen Sound. Artwork by Neltner Smallbatch, and photography by John Willis and Lindsay Steinhauser. Please subscribe, rate, and write a review. Visit our website for more information at stigmatizedpodcast.com.